Welcome to the Million Pound Biller Podcast, where we interview people from inside and outside recruitment to give you ideas to help you on your way to a million pound year. Now, over to Adrian Mansfield, the Million Pound Biller. Welcome to another Million Pound Biller interview podcast. And today we've got something that I think will be very interesting to those of you out there who are owners of recruitment companies and potentially looking at future plans for those agencies. Today we're joined by Tony Shalley, who is the MD of Espace Europe, a freight forwarding company based in the Midlands. And he has, over the last few years, piloted an interesting way of exiting from the company and retaining his money from the company, should we say, but also giving over to the company employees. But Tony, so why don't I turn it over to you and you can tell me a bit about you, yourself, and this scheme that we're talking about. Yeah, thanks, Aidan. Thanks for having me on today. So, so my background, I'm a language graduate, fell into freight forwarding, European freight forwarding, feuded by chance about 25 years ago. Worked for a few companies. I eventually thought I can do this better. So set the business up in 2000. Yeah, and started off with four people. We're now at 41. Sort of million quid turnover in the first year, up to 12 million quid now. I started to get a few calls when I was 58, about five years ago, from people looking at my business thinking, they'd be a nice add-on to my business. So these are big freight forwarding companies. I had a couple of meetings with one of the guys, and it became very evident after the second meeting and he wasn't interested in my business at all. He just wanted my customers. He wanted my customer list. He wasn't interested in any staff that weren't customer facing. So he would have got rid of my accounts team, would have got rid of my sales team that were focused on new sales, not on current business. Would have lost the name, would have lost the building. And I'd have had to go and work for him for a couple of years to embed my customers into his business. And he'd be in complete control of that process. There is no way I'm doing that to my staff, losing half my staff for someone to... And it, I just hated the idea of selling to a competitor, having fought these guys for 22 years, <laughs> 15, 17 years at that time, to bloody yeah. give my business to them, then make me work for them for two years. And that, yeah. fortunately, sort of the way it does, it can work with trade sales, certainly in our industry, that no one writes a big check on day one. Yeah. I want you to hang around, embed that business. I just thought, no, I can't do that. So I wrote out trade sale. I looked at MBO, started to look at that. And I just come to the conclusion that my four senior managers, there's no way that they put their houses on the line to pay me out. And I wouldn't want to do that to them. I wouldn't want to force that to them. And the banks would only lend half the value anyway. So I'd still be 50%. Mm. I wrote that off. And then I Googled one day, exit plans, succession plans. But what am I going to do? And I came across this thing called employee ownership, selling your business to what is majority of times an aggressive trade buyer who mm. wants it at the cheapest price he can get. You effectively transfer ownership of your business into an employee ownership trust. Okay. And the beneficiaries of that trust are your staff. That trust doesn't have any money, but the trading company does. And the trading company effectively dividends money up every year to the trust that pays me, the exiting owner, out over a given number of years, seven or eight years, mm -hmm. uh, from the profits of the business. And all that money is sent up through the company's tax rate because wow. it's coming through a trust. Yeah. So... There are a number of advantages, but that's the model of it. And we'll talk about the advantages later, but that's what I did. And it, it's a model which is proven. There was 300 or so employee-owned businesses in 2017. There's 800 now. John Lewis is the biggest. Mm. Got guys like Go Ape went employee-owned last year. Right. Richard Sounds went employee-owned. Ardman Industries, who do Wallace and Gromit. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all employee-owned. So uh, there's a growing trend towards it, uh, social justice. Social yeah. People have a social conscience now about who they want to work with, where they want their stuff sourced from. Mm. They want it sustainable. They want it this, they want it that. And I think they want to work with companies sometimes that, that treat the staff really well. And that is definitely a growing trend in towards employee ownership. So I, I'm really, really glad I chose that route. 
Absolutely. No, yeah. It sounds like we'll talk a bit more about advantage and disadvantage in a second, but, yeah, yeah. but from the point of view of, of so many of my fellow recruitment consultants who set up their company have this plan at some point to sell their company, and notwithstanding the issues you've just talked about in terms of trade sales, which I think are every bit as much of an issue in the recruitment space as they are in your market in terms of selling to a competitor and the idea of, in essence, just ripping your customer base over and losing yeah. the, the soul of the company because that's invariably what they're trying to buy. The numbers for recruitment are tiny. I think something like 0.2% of companies get sold in a trade sale for any relative amount of money. And by that, we're talking about millions as opposed to, this is why when we spoke prior to the pod, I really thought this was a model that could interest those in recruitment. So, I mean, that's my view on recruitment, but tell me a bit about from your point of view and having been through this with your business, what sort of businesses would you think are the ones that the best suit this sort of model of a Lexi route? Yeah, I'll come on to that. An interesting thing you said there is that the over expectations on price that a lot of people put on the businesses. Yeah. 80% of the businesses never sell. (laughs) They put on the market and they never sell. And there's four reasons. Lack of preparation, poor financials, the owner of a liant. That's a big one. And basic unrealistic price expectations. So it's no wonder when you've got those four factors that a lot of businesses don't sell. But there are a number of factors which employee ownership will suit certain industries and certain companies and it won't suit others. It definitely suits industries where the company is people reliant and not tech or machinery reliant. It's service industries, basically. It very, really suits. The majority of SME employee-owned businesses in the UK are the likes of architects, care homes. They're all reliant on the people doing the do to, to make it work. Mm. And recruitment companies are a great example of that as, as a service industry. Like we are, we're a freight forwarding business. We move stuff around the world, in and out of Europe, around the UK. We have no assets. We are literally a list of customers, a list of suppliers, and great people in the middle marrying them up, like your recruitment companies do. That's it. You're you're matchmakers, aren't you? We match a truck to a a load. You match a position to a candidate. It's exactly the same. And you charge a fee for that. So those industries are really suited to employee ownership. You need to be profitable. At the end of the day, no point doing employee ownership unless you have a profitable business because most deals are, are never going to get over 5 million quid. If your valuation is 5 million quid or above, the bank will be interested in lending the company money to buy the owner out. Yeah. The deals of less than 5 million, which the vast majority are, the deal is done by basically the exiting shareholder setting up a loan with the trust and getting paid out over six or seven years. But that won't happen unless you're profitable. Mm. So, and you need to set your valuation realistically that you can get your money out within six or seven years. There's no point being employee owned and hanging around for 20 years to get your money because the staff will never get the benefit. Profitability is important. You need a good culture. I always say to people that a bad business will still be a bad business even when they transition to employee ownership. You need a common purpose, you need strong mission, vision, and values, and those need to be focused around the interests of the employees, not the interests of the MD or the senior management team. So I found that we, our business was very much had an employee ownership feel to it anyway, before I decided to go down the route, because, you know, I did listen to the staff and I did take on board what they say and they did have a say, but it wasn't a formal say compared to how it is now through an employee council. But I very much, we were people focused, not profit focused. Yeah. And that's always been my mantra, people, not profit. You do need a good culture. It does suit those industries that are focused on people. And you need an owner, too, that wants to go. A lot of people that do employee ownership sometimes do it for the wrong reasons. They do it for the tax-free money. They're doing a deal, get a load of tax-free money, and carry on working for the business. Add in for night and taking a nice PAYE salary out of it, too. Yeah. 
that can't happen. You actually need an owner that wants a legacy to leave a legacy and to move on and to say, I've had my pound of meat out of this. It's over to you guys now. So you need the right type of owner that is doing it for the right reason. So at the end of this process, and forgive me for so if you were, for example, selling out under an MBO, for example, I suppose the most akin to it, because the trade sale is a trade sale, you're selling it off to another company and it's just going to take parts yeah. and make it into what. But under an MBO, in theory, you could retain a legacy shareholding. But under under this model, effectively, your that all no. shares are going no, into a, a, No, actually, yeah, you can. To get the tax-free benefits, you've just got to transfer a controlling share. Okay. To 51% basically. So I could have kept 49% of my business. Or somewhere below that. So 20%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I could have done anything, uh, but I did 100. I did 100%. But a lot of the companies I mentioned earlier, they've done about 70 or 80%, and shareholders are kept 20 to 30%. One of the questions that I've got, and I suppose this comes from a recruitment point of view, so it's staffing related. Yeah. Who makes the decisions? How does that work in terms of like a structure in the company and decision making, et cetera? Yeah. So in an employee owned business, which basically has to have at least 51% of the shares, the whole governance changes, basically. So before it would be an MD at the top with a board of directors or a management team that run the business. Uh, that still happens. There is still an executive board. But above that executive board, there is a board of trustees. Okay. And their job is basically to hold the uh, executive board to account because the executive board has to run the business in the best interest of the employees. And they actually operate pretty much exactly the same as a board of governors in a school and a head teacher and the senior leadership team in the school, that the board of governors can't actually make decisions within the school. That's not their remit. They can't, they can't tinker in the ins and outs of the school, but they can question and hold the head to account every quarter. And that's exactly how it works. We have a quarterly board meeting with the trust. I have to go into that meeting with the trustees of the board and, and present a board pack to say, this is how the business is running. This is the profitability. These are the plans for the future. This is what we're looking at. These are the issues we've had. And if they think that I'm not running that business with my team as I should be, and I'm running it for my own benefit or for my senior leadership team's benefit, then they'll hold me to account and they can force me out if they think I'm not running it properly. And that trustee board is appointed by the staff or is it members of the... the yeah, so board trustee board, board, it needs to be a good representation of a good blend of people. So we have an independent director on there. Mm -hmm. I'm on there predominantly because I was still owed a lot of money. Yeah. So I want some sort of control in two employee directors. Okay. So these are people that have been voted in by the staff. So they're basically, we've got five on it too. I've got my finance manager on there and one independent and two employees. Yeah. And it's tough for the employees because, you know, holding an MD and his board to account is, yeah. is a weird concept for them. But they're, they're getting hold of it. And the independent director is a, an ex-John Lewis director of, of engagement there. So she's coming in and helping us grow the employee ownership field and help those train those two employee trustees to do the job properly. So I, I can't just do what I like now, basically. It's a very interesting concept from the point of view of, you know, from a... A recruitment again for a company point of view if you like because you've suddenly got a situation where the employees are above what was traditionally their management team so effectively you've got a yeah you, you know, could a, say a, in your case a freight forwarding salesperson perhaps is now above you in terms of part of the board not above you but part of the board that yeah. is now overseeing what you're doing on a day, -day, -day. I, I, yeah i've got to know whatever i say or whatever i present i can justify decisions that i've made with my management team yeah and uh, i know that whatever i do is can be scrutinized and can be pushed back 
It's, well, it's weird, that's, you know. That's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? Let's face it, if you're getting that scrutiny. No, no, yeah. on a, on a, on a, sometimes it's a lonely place at the top of a business. And it's, sometimes it's nice to have your stuff sense checked. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it makes yeah. you think twice. You, you are a little bit more deliberated too now that you're running an employee-owned business. Yeah. You, you know, you don't want to take ridiculous risks. And actually, certain risks you have to run past the trust straight away because if it goes wrong, then it's not in the best interest of the employee. So they need yeah. to say. In your situation, or I think I know a little bit about John Lewis, but again, correct me if I'm wrong. But my understanding is that if you're part of that trust, then you get a, let's say, one share per person. So if it's you get a share of the profits based on yeah. what they allocate to the partners or in yeah. John Lewis's case, the partners. Yeah. How does that work from a point of view of seniority or yeah. ownership of the company or anything like that? Is it yeah. one share, one person, should we say? Yeah, so I've set up a pure indirect ownership model. So my staff don't own any shares, okay. basically. The trust owns the shares yeah. and they are beneficiaries of the trust and their percentage beneficiary stake is based on their salary and on their years years with the business. Yeah. So there's a little formula that we work out, and that gives someone on 40 grand a 8% stake in the trust, someone on 20 grand a 4% stake in the trust. Okay. If you leave the business, basically your percentage is chucked back in for everyone else to share out. You, there are no share certificates with your name on, and that's the beauty of an indirect employee ownership trust model is you haven't got the minority shareholders leaving the business bad levers and then benefiting from the profitability of the business long term yeah. uh, you could force them to sell the shares back but i decided to go for the indirect model trust owns the shares beneficiaries and work it on their salary being the, the driving factor predominantly for what share they get every year from my point of view one of the biggest issues from a recruitment space having run companies of, of relatively decent size over the years is the potential risk of those good people disappearing off to a competitor. Absolutely. And you yeah. can obviously do things with that salary and, and all those yeah. sort of things. But actually, the problem is always with that is you're, you start creating unequal playing fields. Whereas if they are owning a company share, through this yeah. indirect model, it doesn't matter if they do leave. But at the end of the day, if they have that company share they've got a piece of, yeah. it's an external motivator for them to stay on with your company as opposed to another yeah, company. Yeah, a number of people say, actually, you know, a hybrid model which is a mixture of the employee ownership trust owning some and shares being available to be bought by employees every month. They can just do some sort of scheme to buy shares. Is Some people say that's more motivating because they actually have a, a certificate with their name on and they have those shares. But I just decided to go down the much easier administrative route of beneficiaries. And if you leave, you lose. Compare that either of those routes to a traditional employed model where yeah. somebody has no, you know, they've got a commission or a bonus or whatever it might be, but effectively their their only commitment to that company is the salary yeah. they're getting at the end of each month. That's always potential of somebody coming along and going, well, we'll give you an extra two grand a month or an extra, yeah. and one of your key people can then explode from the business and you've lost the, yeah. Yeah. this really gives is them it, that ownership and that control and that part of the business that they've got their teeth into. So yeah, that. something you just mentioned, Adrian, was about keeping good people. And I think in our industries in recruitment and freight forwarding, which are asset, really asset light, it's very easy with an asset light business just to, and you notice in one day, leave, fight the post-termination restrictions in the contract, which are really hard for me as an employer to enforce, really hard. And then, you know, they're often running, running their own business literally within a couple of weeks. And what can I offer them? I, you know, I can't really, but I, this, they're actually walking away from a scheme where they guarantee seven or eight percent of the business, depending on what. And the higher people, the bigger the percentage. Yeah. So that's a big risk setting up your own business, but it's it's easy to do when it's a goodwill business. So, uh, yeah, so it, it is a little bit of an insurance policy, I would say too. That's a, perhaps an advantage I hadn't written down. It's an insurance policy. 
that keep goods that close to the business. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about that then. Let's talk about the advantages. So we've spoken, I guess, about a few of them already, but what do you see the main advantage of this, this employee-owned trust? By a country mile, the biggest advantage for me was the control it gave me over my destiny. Thoughts of having to wait from 51 to 56 to hopefully find some a company when I was 56 that was willing to pay me what I wanted for my business, not make me work in it, keep all my staff there, keep my brand. That was never going to happen. So I would have had no surety at all for five years. And doing what I did put me in 100% control. Not only did I double the valuation of my business, because I did, well, that's another advantage we'll talk about later, but it gave me the control yeah. of, I've run my own business. I'm going to go and work for them for two or three years. And I'd set my end date and that end date could flex. The payments to me could be flexed up and down depending on the profitability of the business. And yeah, control was the number one thing for me. Mm. Uh, second thing was legacy. I couldn't look my staff in the eye on the last day as I received the check from the buyer, knowing that half of them wouldn't be there on the Monday. I couldn't do it. I've had too good a living out of the business to do that to them. Yeah. Thirdly was, as I mentioned before, the valuation, you know, trade sales in our business. I don't know what it's like in recruitment. Three times EBITDA, four times EBITDA. You're lucky to get four, really. Then due diligence, yeah, due diligence kicks in then, and then they're looking for every nook and cranny to try and knock the price down. Before you know it, you're back down to three to three and a half times EBIT. You know, in an employee ownership deal, it's really common to get six times because you haven't got you haven't got an aggressive buyer on the other side of the table. There is no due diligence really because the business is the business; it's open. Anyone can come in and look at it. It's really good and and tax free element just and also the staff get tax free bonuses which is something that, uh, so the staff can get £3,600 every year in a tax-free bonus, or they pay some NI on it, but they don't pay any income tax on it. Massive bonus. So 3600 is nearly worth 5000 quid in PAYE, which is a really good bonus. All my staff got three six as a minimum last year. That alone with some of the salaries that you're talking about, you know, something on 20 grand to get effectively 25% of their salary in a bonus at the end of each year. It's absolutely brilliant for staff engagement. As I said, my, my business had an, an employee ownership mentality anyway, I thought. But since then, it's just skyrocketed because they actually can see the benefits that, that you know, the profit isn't just coming to me now, that I am sharing it out. Brilliant for recruitment. You know, every business needs a USB, whether you're selling something or you're trying to attract and you know what it's like in your industry. The quest for good staff is just a horrible quest at the moment. Yeah. And everyone's same old saying, everyone's using price, putting their salaries up to attract new candidates. And that will have to stop one day. But, you know, we put a reasonable good salary package on, but we offer an entry into our ownership scheme after 12 months qualifying period. And we show them what the people have got that have been in the scheme for the last three or four years. You know, it, it's an easy sell, basically. That's a great idea from a recruitment point of view. So but this way, you're, you're saying to people, you come along, the salary is market, you get a good salary, but... You get these other things on the side of it. Which is yeah, a, but we do, we do make it very clear at the start that this is the type of person we need an ownership mentality. We don't want nine to fivers in our business. And if you're a nine to fiver, that's fine. Go and find someone else. Do not come and join us. And we exit them. If we if we make a wrong decision, we exit pretty quickly. We make that clear at the start. Because obviously there's always the issue when you're exiting somebody from the business as a management team or as an owner of a business. With the employees owning the business, I suppose they're seeing... They'll almost make the culture will make the decision. Yeah. You see these big companies in Palo Alto, the, the culture is the team, the company, the, the people individually in the company realize that that person isn't quite what yeah. they want. And they kind and of almost. Yeah, exactly. There is a way that we do business. Yeah. We've got a set of internal employee ownership principles. I've got a set of values, which are pure P U R E, 
professional unity, respect and enthusiasm. We expect all our employee owners, our co-owners to show those qualities. That's what employee ownership to us is about. Yeah. And that's what they're judged on. And that's what we recruit them on. It's great for staff retention, as you can imagine, too. It's great for recruitment, but it's also great for staff retention that um, people know that actually the employee is at the center of the business, not the MDs, but, you know, bank balance. Uh, it's great for that. And it's absolutely brilliant for sales and marketing. Oh, my God. The number of contracts we've won because the salesperson goes in and explains what our business is about. And it's, it's a really soft sell. And anything which gives us a USP over our competitors, because all our competitors are the same. Also, everyone's selling freight, moving freight, doing it, buying from the same people, charging the same prices, adding a bit of value here. But no one's got the story that we can tell in our industry. So uh, it's great for sales and marketing, too. Oh, I think so. So we said talked a lot about the positives there, but there, there must be some. I mean, you must have come across some some negatives to this process as you've been going through it. What are the downsides? Yeah. Some deals have gone through that I've heard about where, where the exiting owner didn't really consult the senior management team and said, right, we're going employee-owned, either 51% or 100%. They've sort of gone, well, we thought you'd do an MBO. And, um, you know, we, we would be prepared to take this business on. And, you know, they weren't consulted. So, you know, you do need to consult your senior management team initially with what your thoughts are. That could be a negative. That could, because they think actually we're the ones that have driven this business and now everyone's going to benefit. And we thought it would just be us benefiting. So that might be a negative. That might put them off. That might go, well, that's not what I expect. They might go. So you really do need to engage with them initially in the consultation about employee ownership before you make any decisions to do it. Yeah. It's not about the transaction. It's about the transition. And a lot of the employee ownership companies sell, uh, want to sell their companies, do the transaction first and then think about the transition afterwards. And those are the ones that don't go well. You really do need to do the education first. Make sure everyone's on board, understands the concept. If you don't do that, it can be a real negative because there's lots of confusion. Well, am I a shareholder? Can I put my salary up? Can I do that? What's he earning? Because the education hasn't happened. So that, that could be negative if you do transaction before transition. In certain industries too, I'd say, a trade sale with a reasonable amount of intellectual property in your business, you could probably get eight or nine times EBIT. Mm. You could potentially. In an employee ownership deal, those figures, those multipliers aren't really on the table because there has to be a realistic time over which you're going to exit as an owner yeah. and that your loan is going to be repaid. And, and 10 times EBIT means you could be there for 15 years. And that's just not good for the whole. You need to have a... I draw a line in the stand. I'm going, my thing's paid off, and now all the profits. But then on that front, I mean, I had a conversation and it's going out as a podcast recently with a gentleman called Alan Smith, who's a financial advisor. And there's a point where you're, as an owner, you sit there and you have to think about, you know, what do I want from this business? You know, if I'm going to get, you know, it's 10, it's 10 times EBIT, actually what I need. If six times or five times is what you're going to get and the stress of it, yeah, yeah. Less, you know the management process is better than actually. You know, that idea of, oh, I want £10 million for a business, when actually six will do, yeah. it's more about you as an owner going, well, what do I feel is appropriate for me? What do I need to kind of, yeah. for the effort I put into this this point, it doesn't have to be 10 times. It could be yeah. quite comfortably six, in which case this what, comes into that space. Yeah, then. what is enough? Yeah. That's the question you need to ask. You need to yeah. do a few financial projections, maybe with a financial planning company and go, you know, it's not what your business is worth. It's what do you need to mm -hmm. exit that business and live a good lifestyle in the future. Yeah. Do that calculation first. And then if your business is worth more than that, happy days. Yeah. If your business is worth less than that, then I, if it were me, I would not do employee ownership then or a trade sale. I continue to build value in my business until I got it to the figure that I needed to, to either to do a trade sale or to do employee ownership. 
You need to do the maths first, really. Alan spoke about a couple who'd got a company and they got through this process and they'd gone to an accountant. The accountant says, oh, you know, the company's worth much more than this. They were working all hours. They were literally working Saturdays, Sundays, doing their books on a Sunday. The owners of the companies we're talking about that potentially are looking at this, I suspect they're probably working all hours. And then if they go down the trade sale route and perhaps get 8 or 9 or 10%, then they've got the scenario that you've talked about, which is they need to do two more years on somebody else's payroll. Yeah, It's based on these earnouts. You might get, let's say, just as for easy numbers, you might get 33% on the day you sign the dotted line, but the other two-thirds yeah. of your business is kind of come at, so, so you've then got to spend two years, yeah. as you were talking about, on somebody else's payroll, running mm-hmm. a company that where half the staff are potentially gone, you're seen as the pariah because you sold a company, you've made the money. and then, That's the point where you go, actually, is that 10%, 10 times EBIT worth all of that it's hassle? Well, actually, you don't need it because yeah. you need X to retire. Yeah. You don't that need is, X plus yeah. another million quid, whatever yeah. it is. So um, perhaps another disadvantage, as I said, if the deal's worth less than five million, banks aren't interested in lending companies money. It's not interesting enough. So the vendor is taking, the seller of the business is taking the risk. Yeah. You know, but for me, I'm staying in my business five and a half years. So I'm still driving the process. I take that risk anyway, whether I did EO or not. If I don't make the company work, it's my fault. If it works, it's me and yeah. my leadership team. But you're effectively taking a loan out and you drive it. And it just, it, it's an advantage too, because it forces you to, to push things because you want to be as possible as you can to get your money out as quickly as you can. But uh, you are taking the risk, I suppose. If you pick up a bad debt, half a million quid, it makes you bankrupt. That's it. Your own out's gone, basically. So uh, but that's, that's the only case thing. Apart from for a lot of people, if you're even in the earn out space, you kind of lose your second Yeah, yeah, you do, yeah. Yeah, but those are probably, say, the main disadvantages, but I'd absolutely say massively outweighed by the advantages. So you talked a bit about the ownership from some of the big companies. So what does the sector look like at the moment? Is this something that's being... Because I had not heard of it, I have to say. I suppose I tangentially heard of, of John Lewis being owned by yeah. partners, but yeah. that's because that's something a lot it's, in their market. Um, I hadn't heard of a lot of companies that have sold this route. It's a very well-kept secret. Sounds <laughs> like it. But as I mentioned before, uh, we've got big, big players now getting interested in it. Go8 was a couple of months ago they went. Richard Sounds, I mentioned. Yeah. Ardman Industries and John Lewis as four big companies. So, yeah. And as I said before, it is that social conscience, I think. I think. Owners are realizing that going for the check and going for trade sales perhaps isn't the best because people are becoming more and more fundamentally important to businesses. Whatever sector you're in, for me, it's always about people. And maybe people are realizing that and people want to buy services from people that, you know, they're happy with the way, you know, the, the goods are sourced or the, the staff are treated. And I think there is a big push towards that in society. So it is on the up. When I did my deal, Four years ago, there were 250 employee-owned businesses. Now, there are nearly 800. It's quite a small number when you consider the amount It's of still, still a small number. On a monthly basis. Even in COVID times, there were trade sales happening all over the place. So yeah. it's quite- it really is. But the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and mm. they've done various surveys of the 800-odd businesses now, and the productivity is higher, the staff engagement is higher, job satisfaction is higher. Everything is incrementally better than a non-EO business. But don't get me wrong, there are some great non-EO businesses out there, but in general, they perform at a much higher level because of well, I think, I mean, staff engagement. I think being honest, Tony, we're talking here about a particular set of companies. This is a company or a, a companies, but companies who are thinking as a, and I'm particularly talking to recruitment companies who are in that consideration phase, maybe five, 10 years away from thinking, how do I get out of this business? And yeah. I think looking at these sort of models and going, oh, actually, that's a, that's a route that I would probably think would work for our business. 
But if you're, yes. you know, three or four or five years into your business, you're sitting there going, I'm, you know, I'm 47 now. I'm thinking, well, if actually, if I'm, if my business are in a couple of years' time when we've got them to that stage, actually, this is a model that I might well bring in then because actually it gives me the best of every world. Really. You've obviously gone through this process. You've gone it through it and you're coming sort of you're 14 months now, I think you said, from the exit yeah, of your, your business for 22 months. years. So what's the future? Lots of gold because that's what we met, obviously. But yeah, but, golf, the uh, but I think a really, really important thing is that the exiting owner has to exit and he mm. just can't keep hanging around. You know, I've passed all the strategic development of my business onto my four senior leaders, now four senior management team. I've started to slow down four days a week now to three days a week. You've got to go. And the really key thing is that that owner has to have something to go to, not just, I want to go on a few more holidays. I want to do this. I want to do that. Uh, I'm in the garden. Yes, you could do, but there isn't a pull. That yeah. is not a big enough pull for me. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to be pushed out of your business by your senior leaders. You want, to, you want to leave your business. And I've decided that I'm so passionate about this model and educating business owners that there is another way of exiting your business, that I'm, I'm setting up my own consultancy to help people through the minefield that is employee ownership at times. You know, there's lots of stuff to do with the setting up of the trust, the legalities, decisions you need to make. It takes three or four months, I would say, for a reasonably small deal to go through all the things that you need to make decisions on. So I've been there, done it, made the mistakes, did some really good stuff. And I think, yeah, you know, it will get me out of bed in the morning. So I'll be setting that up this year and and hitting the ground running by April, May next year with that. Wow, brilliant, brilliant. I mean, I think you're right. You don't want to be like that owner that still turns up in the morning and makes coffees and you're like, hold on, where did he go? I thought he yeah. left. He's come back again. Oh, no. Go. Yeah, they're having me back as a chairman. I'm happy, happy to do that, sit on the trust and advise them when they want me to, but I'm not saying you've got to employ me. So, yeah. um, but I suppose that's the benefit of it. Come back to the point. The benefit of this thing is that's the employee's decision. Yeah, it's so their they, decision. They come yeah. to you and say, Tony, can you come and help us and be on the board of us? That's them deciding that, and not you coming back in and going, "Hello, I'm here again." It's, yeah. it's them saying, "Look, Tony, we, we could benefit from your 22 years in this business, being on our board and being a, a say on the trust or whatever it might be." But that's their call. It's not you coming back in as a kind of come yeah. back and come back again. Something. Yeah, really- yeah. So yeah, I've got a goal to try and convert at least six companies in my first year to oh, employee wow. ownership and move them away from a sale. But as you said, you, you haven't got to be thinking about doing it now. Yeah. You know, if you think, well, I want to go, I want to maybe retire at 16, I'm 53 now, 54. You can start having that conversation now and you can set it all up and you're in complete control of your destiny. It is literally, there, there isn't a better way to exit, in my opinion, there isn't no, a better I mean, way. It certainly seems to tick a lot of boxes from my point of view and I'm sure there's a lot of people that listening to this will, will agree with me on that. Yeah. There's a number of recruitment companies, owners listening to this podcast or one or two or people I'm going to reach out to afterwards and put this in their intro because I'm sure there's a few people that would like to listen to this. What are the sort of first actions that they should be taking if they're thinking this is the model that they potentially want to look at? If they're in that kind of phase, you were, say, four years ago when you're thinking, I'm, I'm looking at trade sale, I'm looking at MBO, but I've spoken to the management team, perhaps they're not really the sort of people, because two, three, four people have suddenly got to put their house on the line or, their, or put a personal guarantee, whatever it might be. So that's probably not always going to be the case for a lot of companies. What are the first steps that somebody was thinking about yeah. and should be thinking about sort of As I mentioned before, the first thing I think you could need to do is what is enough. Mm. It's not what your business is worth, it's what is enough for you to go uh, and to lead the lifestyle that you want to lead. That's what I did. I worked out what do I need. And fortunately, the way the business was valued, that was the business was valued a lot more than what I needed, a reasonable bit more than what I needed. That's the first thing I would do is maybe hook up with a financial planner, do some Mm. projections. What lifestyle do you want in your retirement? uh, And do those projections. And then you know, start to look at the criteria for employee ownership. If you want to look at that as a model, you know, 
Have you got six or seven staff at least? Have you got a manager or an MD that could step up? Have you got a leadership team that could perhaps lead it as a committee? If you haven't, then it doesn't suit employee ownership. You could bring somebody in. You could appoint another MD, but appointing MDs is not easy. Yeah. Getting the culture right. So just look at the criteria. What Have a look at your culture. If you run a really autocratic business, I say, and you jump high, whatever the expression is, then again, that culture's not there. So I don't think it would suit. I don't think it would suit you. But I would also say, potentially, initially, speak to the Employee Ownership Association. They're based mm-hmm. up in Hull. They'll put you in contact with people like me, that the people who have done it, that yeah. can talk you through the ins and outs. So speak to as many employee-owned businesses as possible. Explore the different models of employee ownership. So there's the trust, which is indirect. There's the hybrid, which is you can buy shares. And there's the direct, which is basically share. you buy your own shares. So people have gone down that route. So educate yourself first before you make any decisions, but get advice as in yeah. as in everything. Just well, get the advice. We'll make sure that the link to the Employee Ownership Trust goes in the show notes so people can find that if they want to go down that route and have a look at yeah. that. And where can people find you then, Tony? Where where is the best place? Because I've no I've set my consultancy business up called Aon Consulting, uh, A-E-O-N, because it's got E-O in the middle, which is employee ownership. Aon actually means indefinite period of time, which is effectively what happens when you do an employee ownership deal is that the business never gets sold. It's there for eternity. So that's why I chose that. But uh, that website isn't up and running yet. So, yeah, just contact me at my my current business, Espas Europe in Burntwood, just by Canuck. I'll put a link to your website, company website, on the the show notes as well so that people can find you through there and reach out to you if they're interested and obviously put the link to the employee ownership group in Hull as well on that. I mean, from your side, is there anything else that you sort of think people sort of need to consider or think about when you're talking about this employee ownership process? I wouldn't underestimate the value of being in control on it. And the biggest thing that people do is they don't plan the succession. They spend years and years running the business to the nth detail of doing this and that and the other. And they get to a certain age and then they do it all rubbish. They just, they contact a broker who puts a ridiculous valuation on their business because he's getting 4% of a high value. Yeah. And the business never sells because yeah. it's too high because they're, they're putting their future, their retirement in the hands of a broker who's only in it for the money. The other thing that resonates massively with me, and I think it will resonate with a lot of people who run their companies, is that legacy thing. It's the fact you spent, I know, of at least three or four businesses that this might suit. And they've been day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month for the last decade or more running that company, getting it to the point where they're, they're a big, substantial business. And the thought of losing that legacy, either by selling it to somebody in the trade who just basically takes the guts the the bits, yeah. and sends the rest in the dump truck, or, you know, selling it to the management team who actually don't want it and to have that legacy onwards. So many trade deals actually fail that the owners promised £2 million. Pounds, and then what happens? The staff go, they don't like the culture, they leave. They leave with customers that take profit and actually the figures are never hit. So the trigger mechanisms are never hit for the earnout. Yeah, yeah. So I've heard some horror stories about that. So, But employee ownership, you're in control. You drive the process, you drive the whole culture and, and the way the business works. So uh, I'm amazed there's only 800 companies that have done it because I think it's, I think yeah. it's got some really good benefits to everybody. So Tony, thank you again. Really, really valuable time you spent with me today. And I'm, I'm really hoping that this will get resonate with a number of people in the recruitment space. So thanks again. I'll put the notes at the end of the podcast to get hold of you and to get hold of the employee ownership group in whole. But again, thank you for your time. Welcome.